It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit and I'm still here. Uh, yes, of course, we are all in lockdown, so this is a slightly different podcast. We had to do it via the wonders of modern technology. I uh, joined a Skype call with Professor Meg Russell of the Constitution Unit and, of course, Senior Fellow with UK and Changing Europe and with uh, also with Tim Bale, the Deputy Director of the UK and Changing Europe. Um, we were talking about a new report which has just come out from the UK and Changing Europe called parliament and brexit and it is very good too you can go to their website to download it but obviously the news is being dominated by something other than brexit for a change so i started by asking the experts just how relevant this report is and of course the answer is it is here we go why does this report matter does it matter yeah, I mean, I think it does because uh, we've had three years of what some people regard as, uh, rightly or wrongly, chaos uh, in Parliament, which does need uh, to be analysed, not least because uh, Brexit isn't over in the sense that Parliament will still have a job to do in terms of scrutinising the government's uh, conduct of its relationship with the EU going forward and also holding the government to account uh, for any free trade agreement or otherwise that it comes up with um, before we transition completely uh, out of the EU. Yeah, I mean, the report is doing two things. It's looking back and kind of chronicling some of the things that happened in Parliament and some of the ways that Parliament was discussed as well, including the rather wonderful chapter by John Curtis about what the public were thinking about all of this, how it was viewed from the outside. And, you know, that was a hugely controversial period when Parliament was in the limelight. And so I think, you know, at, at the very least for the historical record, it's important to chronicle exactly what happened there, take a step back, analyse sort of some of the rights and wrongs, um, and just sort of record exactly what some of those events were. But also the second half of the report looks forward um, at the ways that Parliament might need to, you know, the lessons we can learn and the ways that Parliament might need to adjust in the future to deal with the next stages of Brexit. And, you know, whenever we're out of this peculiar period that we're in, um, the next stages of Brexit are going to happen. And Parliament has to be ready to deal both with the transition, but also the post-transition environment and the report starts thinking about that and i think it's also of course true to say as meg um says actually in her contribution that um parliament really is the kind of crucible of british democracy uh and therefore you know to understand anything about the kind of politics that we've i was going to say suffered but at least experienced mm -hmm. over the last three years you do have to understand what's gone on in parliament and it will remain uh, the crucible of British democracy, not least because Brexit has been about supposedly restoring parliamentary sovereignty. So really, I think it's absolutely crucial uh, in any consideration, both in, in terms of what's gone past and, and what's going to happen down the line. I do think there is a quite a key relationship between these two periods, because in a sense, we've gone through one period of crisis, a 
particular kind of political crisis, you know, arguments, divisions, and so on. We're now entering another one, which is very different. And the commonality is, as Tim says, that Parliament is at the centre, but Parliament's role was brought into question during the Brexit crisis. And I think that we now, you know, it's really important that we remind ourselves of the centrality of Parliament's role. But it's also, as I said in my contribution, having come through that, it's really critical that we rebuild public trust in Parliament. And that could never be more important than at a time like this, trust in Parliament and also proper accountability for government action, which facilitates in itself trust in government, because the government is now taking emergency powers and trying to do all sorts of extraordinary things. If trust breaks down in our political leaders, we're really going to be in trouble. So, you know, We've got to assess that and, and think it through. So is this the opportunity? I mean, as you say in your chapter that, you know, we need to, to rebuild trust in Parliament. Um, is this an opportunity to do that that has come along sooner than perhaps anybody anticipated? Or, you know, is the flip side of that that, of course, there are certain people, um, you know, I've got a column out tomorrow suggesting this government is not making a very good fist of this. Um, and that is being fed by the last few years where we've seen Parliament sort of flailing around certainly that's how it's looked to the outside to a lot of people uh, and there's an idea that somehow parliament is not up to a, a, a crisis of this magnitude well i think i think there are lots of things going on and maybe parliament isn't the, the absolute first thing um to, to think about in answering that question i think that the period that we've gone through with brexit has been the most extraordinarily divisive period in our politics you know, that any of us can remember. And that division was not just in Parliament, it was in the country. And, you know, the last stages, tempers were very raised in the, in the government. And so, you know, we have to have faith in the government to be doing the right thing. And Parliament is part of facilitating that, of holding the government to account. You know, if the Prime Minister cannot take people with him in some of the things that he's now saying, you know, society could become very unhappy. And unfortunately, you know, the the Prime Minister has been quite a divisive figure over Brexit. So somehow we've got to bring the nation together in tackling this crisis when, at a time when the nation has been maximally divided. And I suppose I would say, where does Parliament fit into that? This, this stuff gets completed. You, you know, this is Brexit and Parliament, which is quite a narrow view, if you like, although, you know, an important one, obviously, given the role that Parliament played in Brexit. But, you know, Parliament is, for the avoidance of doubt, not government and... Boris Johnson sits in Parliament, but is not Parliament and, and all that sort of stuff. You know, is there a reason why you particularly this report is Brexit in Parliament rather than Brexit in government? Well, I mean, I, I think you have to go back to the fact that the UK is a fused system. You know, we don't have a, a separation of a complete separation of powers anyway, in the way that you would have in, for example, a presidential system. And the point you make about Boris Johnson or any prime minister sitting in parliament is incredibly important. Um, you know, there is no government without parliament and vice versa. And I think one of the interesting things, and it comes up in this report, of course, about the Supreme Court's decision, this other branch of government, if we're talking about separation of powers, is that ultimately its decision does seem uh, to me anyway, to have decided that um, Parliament is, if you like, the, the the supreme part 
uh, and that government is accountable to that, not the other way round. So I, I think Brexit, in some ways, has forced us back into you know thinking seriously about the constitution and thinking about how the various parts of the constitution and those those various powers that we talk about when we talk about separation of powers relate to each other and the hierarchy between them. Well, I think that's absolutely true, but. In terms of the fusion, we often see it as, you know, fusion between government and parliament. But of course, parliament isn't just a seat of government. It's also a seat of opposition. Mm. It's a seat of people who represent other parties. And this is one of the problems, I think. And I also commented on this in my chapter in the, in the report, that we can never really expect or very rarely expect parliament to speak with one voice. The whole point of parliament is that you can hear many voices, hear different points of view and get the difficult questions asked of government. So... Um, at a time of national crisis, which, you know, properly we are in now, we might have called Brexit a crisis. It was of a certain kind, but this is a different kind of crisis. Um, one of the things I think which can potentially ensure that people support the government, even when they're doing quite difficult things, is if you can get cross-party agreement. It's, it's rather an irony that Tim has a chapter in the report, which is all about how we're not going to see this sort of cross-party working that we saw over Brexit because we've now got a government with a majority. But actually, in the last few weeks, it's become clear that we're entering a period where if the government and the opposition don't pull together, then things get difficult. Mm. And so, you know, one of the we need to hear, I think, from opposition leaders as well as government leaders in order to encourage people because of. Boris Johnson being a divisive figure, um, you know, if if the parties are all speaking with one voice, we had the press conference, um, the press conferences last night about the new sort of lockdown measures, and we had the first minister of Wales and the first minister of Scotland singing from the same hymn sheet as Boris Johnson, and that's what you need in times like this. And we also need Labour Party leaders to be doing that, and that needs to be maintained throughout the crisis. Otherwise, things start falling apart. And I think that Parliament is a place where those voices are heard, the difficult questions are asked. If government can answer the criticisms, then we can pull together. Otherwise, things get very tough. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the COVID-19 crisis is very interesting on this in the sense that uh, opposition you know, ha has a, a tense role to play in some ways. It, on the one hand, does clearly want to back the government at what is a time of national emergency. But on the other hand, it does have to play, if you like, a constructive um, critic role. And I think actually it has played that um, pretty responsibly over the last few weeks. I think, for example, someone like John Ashworth, uh, the uh, Shadow Health spokesman has been very good both in Parliament and, in fact, on the media as well and, and in meetings with government in getting that just about right. So, in other words, I, I think he has helped um, push the government uh, towards the stronger measures that um, it was felt by many in the public that it needed uh, to take. So I, I think I think the 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 coronavirus crisis has been very interesting in terms of that you know opposition uh, dynamic. Um, I, I mean, just going back to Brexit and Parliament, I think that you know one of the very worrying things, and again, Meg's touched on this, was both Theresa May and um, Boris Johnson seemed to suggest somehow that opposition in and of itself in Parliament was somehow illegitimate. And that, you know, Parliament really, you know, should have no role in, in directing the government or prodding the government or even on occasion, you know, forcing the government to do things that it didn't want to do. And I think that was very, very worrying. I think there's a big difference, though, isn't there, between 
opposition which is partisan uh, and scrutiny which is partisan and scrutiny which is relatively non-partisan and just asking kind of sensible questions, sometimes quite technocratic questions about how things are, are working. You know, are there are there enough tests being done? What's being done to support the self-employed? These kinds of things that, that you know, John McDonnell, I think, has actually been doing rather a good job as well at sort of snapping at the heels of the chancellor um, and encouraging him along. And it's been largely consensual. Um, but accountability is really, really important. I've said this on this podcast before that, you know, Parliament is about, it's a mistake to think that it's all about um, making laws and holding votes. A lot of the time, it's just about getting conversations out into the open, asking difficult questions and ensuring that ministers have thought things through. And I think that level of accountability at a time of crisis like this is really, really important. In terms of what the you know some of the things that the report says about Brexit, I think it's clear. Um, you know, we have a chapter from Hilary Benn, for example, about the work um, of his committee, which was shadowing the department for exiting the EU. The crucial role that that committee played in extracting information from the government about things like No Deal planning and asking tough questions about whether they really had thought it through properly, etc. That's crucial when there are big questions, you know, when there are big, difficult things being done and suggested for the country. And I think that's going to be crucial now. I think the select committees just having those conversations out in the open to firstly make sure the government has thought things through. And secondly, to make sure that the rest of us feel comfortable that it's been thought through because we can hear those conversations and we hear them through the media as well as directly. You know, just given what we're talking about there, we're talking about the opposition and I want to talk about what, what worked and what didn't in the Brexit process in terms of Parliament. And you've mentioned, uh, you know, a few things there already, select committees. Um, also, perhaps to the, the opposition, um, let's perhaps start with them. Do they fit as something that did work or something that didn't work in the course of the Brexit process? Parliament? Well, I mean, one thing that I guess Parliament did fail to do was come up with any positive uh, alternative to, to no deal. It was able to block no deal, um, but it wasn't really able to come up with in a series of you know iterative votes with a, uh, another a solution, if you like, that would perhaps have reflected the majority in Parliament rather than the, you know, the very hard Brexit that we got uh, in the end. So in as much as, and this, of course, has happened, as Meg well knows, with, with House of Lords reform in the past, um, Parliament actually was unable to to even come up with a process that might have allowed it to come up uh, with a solution. Um, there, there was a failure there. Yeah, I mean, House of Lords reform and Brexit are are rather different things. But it's interesting that, yes, we had this process on both where they were trying to work through all of the options and they all got voted down. But the other thing that they have in common is the thing that took you into those votes in the first place, which was the fact that both of the main parties were completely divided on the issue. That's the difficulty. You know, on Brexit, the normal government versus opposition dynamic didn't work in a predictable way because the prime minister could not bring her MPs with her um, for, through most of the period when it was Theresa May. And also Jeremy Corbyn could not bring 
his MPs with him because actually he had a view on Brexit that was pretty out of step with the view of most of his MPs. He was a controversial figure himself. And the Labour Party was pointing in lots of different directions. And that's why you end up in these chaotic situations where you're trying to build a majority. I think one of the things that the Brexit process taught us, you know, many of us sort of celebrate independence on the backbenches. We don't want everybody to be just slavishly following their leaders. Um, that, that, you know, looks in a sense like Parliament not working properly. But actually, when it comes to the crunch, you need organisation to pull a majority together. Yeah, I think it is worth saying as well that there was, I'm sure, a majority for a soft Brexit in yep. Parliament um, that Theresa May could have put together had she reacted to the referendum differently at the beginning of her premiership. The fact that she chose to go with what um, was a hard Brexit in the end made that completely impossible. But it was a choice that she made. And therefore, in some senses, she foisted her problems upon herself uh, rather than Parliament necessarily foisting them upon her. So what failed there? Is that party politics failing? Is that whipping failing? Is that just Theresa May failing? Or does it come back to this putting a complicated question to a binary referendum? Is that? I think quite a lot it was, um, you know, you don't want to personalise these things too much, but I think to a, to a significant extent it was Theresa May failing after the 2017 election. I mean, one of the things which I emphasise in my chapter, and I've got a longer longer piece coming out which kind of goes through this in more detail, is that um, the typical dynamic in Parliament is that the Prime Minister governs with the support of their own backbenchers and they have a majority. Um, You know, Theresa May had a majority um, before the 2017 election. She threw it away on a gamble at that election. Theoretically, even after the election with the DUP, she had a majority. Um, But that majority was never going to hold together. You know, in a sense, why did she even go for the 2017 election? Why did she need to do that? Because this hard Eurosceptic wing on her backbenches that was unlikely to support her deal. So she tried to get a bigger majority in order to neutralise those Eurosceptics. And the 2017 Uh-oh. election put them back into the driving seat. And she never tried to find an alternative majority by reaching across the aisle, as Tim says, to find a majority for a soft Brexit. She knew it was going to split her party. It would have been pretty catastrophic for the Conservative Party for her to do a deal with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but that deal could have been done. It's a question of priorities as to whether you sort of prioritise the national interest or prioritise the party interest. And she put holding her party together first. And it was pretty, it, it worked out pretty badly. Would you agree, Tim, that was the failure? Yeah, I mean, not only did it work out pretty badly, it just didn't work <laughs> because she still couldn't hold her party together, um, yeah. you know, by by the end of it. Although one of, the, of course, the fascinating things is that Boris Johnson managed to do so on essentially the, you know, the, a very similar deal to the one that Theresa May had come up with, uh, you know, barring the the, the difference on uh, on Ireland, um, you know, which says something in the end about uh, MPs. Um, motivations because you know on the one hand we were all told that you know there were objections in principle from the ARG to all sorts of things that Theresa May was doing but then when suddenly someone comes along who looks like actually they might be a better leader in terms of winning elections then they they fell in behind that person and essentially went for something that you know by and large um, she might have chosen to give them and I think Uh, ironically um 
if she had gone for the cross-party approach because of the Labour Party being so splintered, um, you know, it, it would be difficult for anybody to pretend that the Labour Party is in a good state. Um, but she could have split the Labour Party in quite a serious way by doing a deal on soft Brexit, because some people in Labour would not have come on board for that. And actually, she might have done at least as much damage to Labour as she did to her own party through that route. Now, Labour does have the potential now to come back together. She, I think, missed a trick, really, um, <laughs> another, in 2017. podcasts, that one, about what Labour does. Let's come back in a couple of weeks and talk about who the Labour leader is and how, that all, how that's going to feed into Brexit and that sort of stuff, because that is going to be suddenly a lot more interesting than it was looking a couple of weeks ago anyway, isn't it? Let's move on from negatives to positives. What can we take away from the last three, four years, whatever you want to call the start point? You know, what what have we learned that is good, that does work, and perhaps, you know, innovations or changes that will embed and be, you know, a boon to Parliament going forward? I think I've already said this, but I think that um, we learned that the select committee system works pretty well, and Parliament is pretty good at extracting information. Parliament's accountability function operates pretty well. Um, and I think that that would be a very good lesson to learn for the current crisis, you know, because transparency and accountability are very important to, you know, building cross-party support um, and to building legitimacy more widely so that the public has trust in the decisions that um, politicians are making in their name. Where Parliament fell down was in the decision-making. Um, and part of that, there's, there, there are a couple of chapters. There's one by Daniel Gover, um, about the use of procedure. Um, and there's one by Jack Simpson cared about the role of the speaker, which of course was highly controversial um, in the crisis. So the management of the parliamentary agenda when it came to the Brexit decision-making and the controversies about the degree of control that the government has over the agenda and whether other MPs perhaps should take control of the agenda, things got pretty nasty on that. But actually up until that point, on the just exposing the, the government's decision-making to daylight and, you know, holding them to account, I think worked pretty well. Yeah, and I think if I were to identify one, you know, part of the process that um, uh, Meg's talked about there, I think the fact that uh, we saw so many urgent questions granted, both on this and, and, of course, on other subjects as well, was very important in that respect. Uh, now, whether, of course, that will carry on or whether it was a feature of John Burko's uh, reign, as it were, I think will be interesting to see. And, and of course, you know, you can't really understand uh, the role that Parliament played without thinking about these sort of contingency and these agency factors. You know, if we'd had a different speaker, who knows, things have got, could have been completely different. If Lindsay Hoyle had uh, been uh, Mr. Speaker, you know, over the last three years, uh, who knows if um, the government would have got into quite so many difficulties or be held to account in quite the way that they actually were. There is a fundamental important point that Jack Simpson Caird makes in his chapter in the report on the speaker, which is that the speaker ultimately can only facilitate decisions being taken by others. So, you know, he, he, he wasn't making the decisions. He was just deciding whether Parliament should be able to have certain discussions and, and have certain votes. And so at the end of the day, it wasn't his fault that the government got into trouble. It was the fault of, you know, MPs chose to use that time to defeat the government. 
Mm. And uh, I think so- I think it's it, it's absolutely worth anybody who hasn't seen the videos from our conference, which sort of accompanied, as it were, this report. Uh, there's a great uh, well speech. It has to be said by John Burko. Um, uh, chaired by Tim, very yeah, ably. Chaired by me. Well, not very ably because uh, John <laughs> slightly extended uh, the the time he was allotted. But anyway, um, it's a really, really good speech by John Burko on on the role that he played. And you know, he makes Meg's point actually very forcefully uh, there. So I would recommend anybody you know going to the UK and Changing Europe um, YouTube channel and having a look at that actually. It actually was remarkably. I mean, obviously, he's just written this book, and um, I, I, I'd read the relevant parts of the book. Um, before the speech, so I could see that he was in a sense rehearsing some of the things that he wrote in the book. But it was just, it was remarkably crisp and clear in terms of the the extent to which he could remember the dates, remember the number of people voting on which clause. And, you know, it was actually a very clear exposition of what went on during that period, obviously from a certain point of view. Um, you two are good, aren't you? You're working your way through the chapters, you're plugging the conference and the videos. God, I, you know... I hope Anan puts. I don't know. Can't do it. Can't buy your pint, can he? Can't can't go to the pub. So I don't know how he's gonna. How he's a gonna... virtual a virtual pint. He, <laughs> he could um, transfer us uh, transfer us some money or something, and we could, uh, yeah, it, it, maybe get out and buy us, ourselves a bottle of beer or or not. <laughs> yeah, leave him the doorsteps. That's it. Leave him the doorsteps. <laughs> Hi, Arnand here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk and sign up for our fantastic newsletter every two weeks, free in your inbox. Do it now. Uh, you got any thoughts on a GNU, Tim? I mean, uh, are, the, are the same factors that mitigated against uh, government of national unity actually happening during Brexit? Are they the same factors that will stop a GNU happening because of coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, one of the tensions, obviously, for any parliamentary party is, on the one hand, a desire, if it possibly can, to cooperate with other parties in order to get stuff done, whether that's to get legislation through or to stop legislation getting through. Um and on the other hand, the desire to maintain a sense of distinctiveness, you know, to build its own brand. And although sometimes it can seem as if, uh, you know, getting together with other parties would be either in their long term interest or even in the national interest, I think it's very difficult for parties to think, to be honest, beyond, um, you know, the, the next election and almost sometimes beyond the next uh, three to four weeks in which, you know, they are planning to to make a big splash on, on some particular issue. Um, so I, I, I suspect that although people talk about a government of national unity, it, it strikes me it's quite unlikely. I, th- I think it's really interesting that we're talking about this again now because the, the circumstances are just so, so different. I mean, in a sense, when we were talking about this over Brexit, the term government of national unity was completely the wrong term. Because where we were, we were completely divided. And the point of the government of national unity would have been, because of the divided parties that we were talking about before, to take kind of a group from one party and bring them together with a group from another party to hold together a parliamentary majority with other people in those parties completely disagreeing with them. And and it failed. It, it, It proved impossible to do that. Now we really are talking about potentially everybody trying to pull in the same direction. And I think... 
I agree with Tim. I think a, a formal government of national unity, whereby you you know bring Labour people into the cabinet, I find it quite difficult to see how and why and when that would happen. But in a sense, we kind of already are moving in the direction of you know unity government in a broader sense. I said that you know Nicola Sturgeon um, came out and essentially made the same speech as Boris Johnson did. You know who would ever have expected that? Okay, let's let's try and finish with um, what I think is a really easy question. Um, transition is is it going to end on the thirty first of December? <laughs> Tim's written something on this, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, I mean, a one-word answer, isn't it? It's a one-worder. This one. Well, it's uh, yeah. Some would say it's a no-brainer. I mean, uh, we managed to uh, encourage YouGov to do some polling on this, and it's clear that there is a majority in the country for. Uh, extending transition in order to allow us to deal, as it were, with the coronavirus first and then return to Brexit. It's very noticeable that there is actually a difference between Leavers and Remainers on this. Um, Remainers are are very, very keen on um, uh, extending transition, surprise, surprise, and Leavers are less so. Uh, But even so, a substantial minority of Leavers uh, would be prepared to see that happen, which is why there is a majority across the country. So if Boris Johnson does want to do it, and uh, I think many people would argue he should do it, and that perhaps it's inevitable that he will do it, I think he'll be on very firm ground. The peculiar thing is, I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, it, it, I've, clearly there's a Brexit division on this question, but I think as this crisis goes on and deepens and, you know, just yesterday we were told that, you know, we can't leave our houses except for essential things. You know, how are you going to hold um, negotiations? And the people who would be embarked in the negotiations, all of these national leaders have got the biggest crisis of their lifetimes to deal with at home. It would look kind of trivial to move on with this now. But of course, Boris Johnson um, saddled himself with a legal commitment that he can't extend. So he's actually going to have to ask Parliament to legislate to let him off the hook, which is kind of ironic because when he did that at the time, I said this was a bizarre thing to do for a man who had a huge comfortable commons majority to legislate to tie his own hands. Yeah, listen back to these podcasts, you see. And, you can, you can prove that you said it. It's worth mentioning, you know, you, you may tease me, but I'm going to try and squeeze in another chapter here. In the report, there's an excellent chapter by Jill Rutter and Joe Owen pointing Thank out you. that there's plenty more Brexit legislation to come. They list six bills on things like agriculture and fisheries and immigration and things that need to go through Parliament. Now, is that really going to be Parliament's priority at this time? We don't even know the extent to which Parliament will be able to be meeting in the coming months. So, you know, even at our end, it's difficult to see how we will be able to have the arrangements in place by the end of transition. How can we leave the EU if we can't even leave our houses? There's a line. (laughs) There's a line. That's a great line. That's a great line. (laughs) Right. Let's finish up with um, because, you know, homeschool breaks up for lunch in about a minute. So, uh, you know, I need to go and sort that out. Uh, First of all, let's finish with uh, something I have to ask. is it just the camera on this Skype call, or is that a massive mug you've got, Meg? Uh, yep. Um, Gigantic mug. That ma- it looks like a massive mug of tea. Uh, yeah, well, at the moment it looks kind of bigger than my head, doesn't it? Yeah. It's the of my head. <laughs> is it it a is mug? about a pint of tea, yeah. 
Uh, I thought maybe it was some weird camera thing going on. Um, and let's finish with the recommendations. We're still doing the recommendations. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. You know, you can't recommend the report because I think we've plugged that more than enough. Yeah. Uh, do you? We can't uh, recommend or... it enough is what you mean. Well, all right. Yes. <laughs> uh, do you have any more recommendations for understanding well, what well, happened I... on I do, I do, yeah. Um, if people aren't already um, uh, following it, I would recommend um, something by Chris Gray, who's Professor of Organisation Studies at Royal Holloway. And he does something called The Brexit Blog. It's Chris Gray Brexit Blog, all one word, dot blogspot dot com and uh it's regularly i think a really really good read but he's got a very very good piece actually on what we've been talking about uh just now uh, on extending the transition period and he calls it johnson's chance to lead so i'd really recommend people read that one meg have you got, okay, got anything um, left in the locker i, I i'm going to look backwards um although you know with something that has only recently been published i've just started reading um a book that's just come out um, by the Irish journalist Fintan O'Toole. It's a very aptly titled uh, book about Brexit. It's called Three Years in Hell, uh, The Brexit Chronicles. And it is essentially um, a collection of his articles that he wrote starting just before the referendum. And what you get is this writing in real time about the point that we're at at any moment. It's quite a nice reminder of how things developed. I haven't got very far into the book yet but he writes beautifully he's got a fantastic turn of phrase and a really sharp tongue so there you go two recommendations of reading matter which is what we all need really at the moment isn't it we've got plenty of time to read because we can't leave our houses and if you're looking for something else to read i genuinely do recommend the parliament and brexit report from the uk and a changing europe it is uh, obviously very well informed it's also very readable and uh, as the experts pointed out it's it is relevant this coronavirus crisis will pass brexit will be back you can read the report and be particularly well informed when that happens um but having said all that the most interesting thing from that whole podcast i thought was meg's massive mug you should see it it's massive um apparently she only puts one tea bag in it and just has very weak tea uh, but of course meg's massive mug coincidentally the name of my whimsical 1990s folk band do you remember what was the what were the norwegian guys that did folk music that everyone liked for a while um i would make that the competition for this week but uh, we can't actually send out any mugs because clearly um, everyone's working from home and, you know, we can't post stuff in case it's got germs in it and all that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, feel free to get in touch uh, if you know the answer to, oh, is that Norwegian whimsical folky band called? I can't remember. Um, you can get me at Political Yeti on Twitter. You can also, if you want, uh, bother the UK and changing Europe people with your answer. It will confuse them no end, but... Uh, it gives me an excuse to give out their contact details, which you can use to contact them about anything, really. They are at UK and EU on Twitter. They're on Facebook and their email address is UK and EU at kcl.ac.uk. Um, do get in touch with them. Uh, I can't honestly say when the next podcast will land because let's face it, none of us really know what's happening 
day to day at the moment. But the technology stood up for this episode, so I hope we will do more in the coming weeks and keep you entertained while you are stuck in your house. You can listen to me and the experts from the UK and Changing Europe telling you all sorts of interesting stuff that you will need because, as I say, this will pass and Brexit will be back. So there's something to look forward to. Um, so, as ever, this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK to Changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Keep tuned, we will have more episodes going forward. Thanks for listening and uh, stay safe. Goodbye. Goodbye.